So I'd like to start tonight with a poem. And it's a poem from John O'Donohoe called For a New Beginning. He says, In out-of-the-way places of the heart where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease and risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm for your soul senses the world that awaits you. So the word last night was ida, ida, here. And here we are, all of us. Here we are at the beginning of a retreat, just finishing the first day. So I hope you're doing well. You all look good. You look quiet. I'm not so sure it's true underneath, but it looks great on the surface. And beginnings, you know, the beginnings of things are so important because the beginning is where we create the foundation on which everything else is built. So there's great wisdom in what we sometimes call the beginner's mind. And Suzuki Roshi said in his great book called Beginner's Mind, he said, in the mind of the beginner, there are many options. In the mind of the expert, there are few. So those of you who are beginners here this week are lucky, actually. It's not a lesser category of being. It's actually a really good category of being. And those of you who aren't beginners might do well to take a deep breath and begin again and let yourself have beginner's mind. And we all know from probably hard experience, at least mine was, how much trouble we create for ourselves when we think we aren't beginners and we start somewhere in the middle of things, and we actually are beginners. 
So here, here at this retreat, we have begun with the breath. I actually realized as I was walking up this evening, I can't think of any retreat in all of my more or less 30 years of practice that did not begin with the breath. We always begin with the breath. And allowing the breath to arise into the space of the mind, relaxing into the awareness of the breath. The breath is so astonishing. And I was remembering, I was really privileged to be able to watch both of my grandsons be born. And so there's that amazing moment when a baby emerges from its mother and there's the first breath, that very first breath that is astonishing and extraordinary because suddenly here's this little potential human being that is now breathing and is now here among us. And each one of you, each one of us, has had that first breath that very first amazing breath, which is the beginning of this human adventure. And it's, the breath, it's that place in so many traditions that feels not only astonishing, it's also sacred. And Kabir says, student, tell me what is God He says, he is the breath inside the breath. Isn't that wonderful? The breath inside the breath. So if you get bored with your own breath, you can see if you can find the breath inside the breath. And we so often in working with the breath, we forget about it. How many times did you wander off today? Got any guesses, you know, 10, 15, 5,000, you know, 10,820, whatever it was, you know, we wander off and we wander off. It's amazing how difficult it is actually to stay with the breath. And so this breath is part of the first foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of the body. And I love it that we call them foundations. There's other words. Sometimes people talk about the four domains of mindfulness and the four territories of mindfulness. And there's different ways to hold it. But I actually like the word foundation because it has that sense of this is something, you build the foundation and then you put other things on it. But it's very, very important to have a good foundation. So we begin with the breath and we return to the breath every time that you are lost or confused at any point in your practice. The instruction is always, if you get lost, if you get confused, if you forget all of the instructions you ever heard about practice, if you can't think of what to do next, if you're afraid or whatever, then come back to the breath and begin again. Because the breath orients us and calms us 
and often provides us just with a place to rest when we relax into the breath, relaxing and softening into the breath. But as we consider these early foundations for practice, I think it's also important um, to go back and look at, well, what is it What is it that brought you to the breath? Why are you here, really, is the question that we're asking. And so, you know, what are the other beginnings of our practice? And so some, one way to hold it is that it's everything up until now, everything that you has been in your life has been a preliminary teacher to bring you to this particular point in practice. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's the catastrophes and the love affairs and the difficult jobs and the child who is tough to raise and the sorrows and the deaths and the losses and the other retreats and the other teachers and the other practices. All of them have been preparing you to come to this particular moment, this ida, this here, now. And so all of the events of your life are actually part of the foundation of your practice. They're not a terrible mistake. There's nothing actually that is a terrible mistake. There's nothing that we can't learn from. And obviously you're all here. So you, you know, there's a way in which you have already learned from these events. So you've made it through the day and you've begun. And we did begin in this very simple way, just giving our attention to the breath, giving our attention to the movement of the body as we walk back and forth, giving your attention to the body as you worked in yoga class, if you did that, or as you did your work meditation. Very, very simple, coming back over and over and over again. So one way to work with the foundations of practice is to consider what is it that turns the mind toward the practice? What is it, if you will, that brings you to mindfulness of breath and body and the states of the mind and the heart and the awareness of the feeling tones of things, all the different territories of mindfulness. And there is a teaching that I wanted to include tonight that is about the four thoughts that turn the mind toward practice. What? They're the thoughts that bring us to practice when we reflect on them. And they, they create a foundation for practice and there are also reflections that you can go back to at any time to consider in order to nourish your practice and to to strengthen the foundation. In a way, you have to tend to your foundations. You can't neglect them or they begin to fall apart. As I thought about this talk today, I was remembering that when we were selling our house in California last summer, there was a 
a house that was for sale on our road and it, it didn't, it was not too expensive and it didn't sell and it didn't sell and it didn't sell and we were kind of curious, you know, since we were about to sell a house, what was, what was going on with this house? Well, we found out that the previous owner had been growing some illegal plants in his basement and he had not only done that, he had dug out part of the foundation in order to do that. So a house without a foundation is not tenable. It's not, you can't live in it and it's likely to fall down. So this thing of foundations, it was, it was a wonderful image to just remember that we have to keep working with them and, and making sure that they're okay. So these four thoughts that turn the mind are these. One is to consider the preciousness and rarity of having a human life with enough leisure and opportunity for practice. It's not so common. The second is the absolute inevitability of dying, of the truth of impermanence. The third is to consider how powerful even the smallest action can be because it will have consequences. And the fourth is to reflect on the pervasive presence of suffering in our world. I imagine if we had time to have a conversation with all of you, and we will, but tonight we would find that pretty much all of us are here because we have reflected on one or another of these teachings. So many of us have gone through, you know, the death of someone close to us or the amazing event of a birth or um, we've seen that our actions are create either are creating difficulty or perhaps we've observed that there are actions that bring great good or we've been just so touched by the suffering on our planet. And these, these are actually, these are just as familiar as our breath, aren't they? because they're the earmarks of the human condition, of human existence. And they point towards the truth of the human existence and then the problems that are pretty much universal to all of us. So the first is the preciousness of a human life with leisure and opportunity for practice. And whatever you might say about human beings, we are very rare, actually, even though there are seven billion of us. Seven billion or 700 billion? Seven billion. 700 billion would be way too many. (laughs) Seven billion is way too many. So, you know, if you think about the enormity of the cosmos, which is one of the things I like to reflect on these days. Billions of galaxies. Isn't that astounding? You know, billions of galaxies. Trillions of stars out there. And now we search for habitable planets. You know, are there any out there that could possibly 
be in exactly the right zone to sustain some kind of life. And we find that it's not very easy to find such planets and maybe they've located five or six, possibly. And who knows even if on those possibly habitable planets any form of conscious life exists. But we do know that on one of them conscious life does exist and that's us. It would be astonishing if we were the only conscious life in all of that enormous cosmos. But I suppose it's possible. And even here on this beautiful planet of ours, we are totally outnumbered, completely outnumbered. Just consider, for example, all of the numbers of insects, you know, ants and spiders and mosquitoes and various bugs, way more than there are of us. Or if that's not enough for you, you could think about all of the beings who live in your body. You have trillions of teeny organisms living on you. So if we multiplied our trillions by all 84 or so of us, that's a lot of trillions of little beings, way more than we are. And then, of course, you've got all the fish in the oceans and the amoebas and the elephants and the mice and the deer and the turkeys and, you know, it goes on and on. Vast numbers of life forms here and only seven billion of us. And we're also, we know, we are a totally recent development. We are so nouveau, you know, just in the last teeny, teeny sliver of all of those scales of what's happened in the 4.6 billion years of the life, of the life of the earth. And we come in at the very, very end, and we have no idea how long we're going to be here. Maybe not so long if we don't take care of ourselves. So it's not common to be human. And it's even more unusual to have the leisure and opportunity to practice. All of you in the last few days have been through that exercise called getting ready to go on retreat, which I've often thought feels a little bit like getting ready to die. You know, you're getting your affairs in order for while you're here. And, um, and it takes quite a bit of work actually. And it's not easy to have enough time to go sit a retreat for a week. There's an image in the traditional teachings about all of this. It says having this kind of a human life is as though in all of the oceans of the world, swimming around there was a blind, a blind sea turtle. And your chance of getting a human existence is as though there were a life preserver floating on that ocean and that blind sea turtle came right up in the middle of it. So the chances aren't great, are they, that that's going to happen. And then it's even rarer to hear the Dharma and even rarer to get to practice it. In the range of human experience, we also see that there are many who don't have the ability to practice. There are people with not enough food, 
with not enough resources, they have no homes, they live in places of great political and economic conflict and war zones and that kind of thing. And survival is all they can do. That is not a life that has the leisure and opportunity for practice for most of the people there. And we also know what happens at the other end of the spectrum when sometimes we have too much and we get caught by greed and the constant quest for more of just about everything and the idleness and the numbness that can come with overindulgence. And so that doesn't lead to opening to practice either. They don't, when we're caught in that kind of place, we don't see the opportunity and we don't use the leisure that is there. So it's, it's actually, it's a kind of a Goldilocks thing, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. And so the human existence has to be just right with just the right balance in order to be able to practice. So then the next really important thought to reflect on, and it's actually the thought that helped to bring the Buddha to his time of enlightenment, which is the reflection on the inevitability of death. So many of you know the story of the Buddha that when he was young, he was protected from seeing all kinds of difficulties. And then he got out, as young men do. And he went into town and he saw someone who was old and someone who was sick and someone who was dying. And he was dumbfounded. You know, what is happening? He'd never seen anything like it. Is this going to happen to me, he said, to his friend who had gone with him. And his friend said, yeah, it happens to everyone. And then walking through that same town, he saw a monk going through, going by the people who were sick and old and dying very serenely. And so he also had a glimpse of some other way to, to take it in other than being so shocked. And so these are called the heavenly messengers. Sickness, old age, death are heavenly messengers. It's very difficult to hold them that way. We know that nothing stays the same ever. You may be noticed today, it's sort of astounding, isn't it? The breath is so impermanent. It comes and it goes and it's gone for forever. There will never be another breath like that in all of space and time. They just keep coming and going. It's really impermanent. Or you can think about like, where's supper? Supper happened, you know, a couple of hours ago and it's gone. It's really gone. So we begin to kind of go, oh, look, it really is impermanent when we take the time to look at it. But we are so resistant to taking in the reality of our own mortality. It's everyone else but me. You know, everyone else but me. Recently I was listening to some music and I was thinking about this talk and um, I heard the singer sing, if I should ever die. (laughs) Really, (laughs) if I should ever die. 
I wanted to call him up and say, hey, you should come to one of our retreats, you know? You gotta get this, you're gonna die. And we so, it's so easy. I'm almost 72. It's so easy to say, if I die, you know? And I need to get over it. It's not if I die, it's when I die. And, you know, enough people my age are dropping off. So it's a good thing for me to consider. And it's a good thing for you to consider, too. My, our monk friends have a practice that they sometimes teach. It always takes my breath away. And they suggest that you could practice, probably with some friends who are also practicing it, too, that when you say goodbye to someone, you say goodbye forever. I could say to Heather, goodbye forever. And because, you know, when I say goodnight to her tonight, I might not see her again ever. It's true. So there's that, that pushing ourselves up against the reality of this, you know, that it is true and it will happen. And of course, we also all get reminded of it when, you know, the different kinds of rude awakenings come along, you know, the, the lump that you didn't know was there, and then we have to go check and see what is this, and all of the different events of aging, the way the skin changes, and I've been through quite a bit with my eyes recently, and, and it's, it's sort of like, well, what does this body think it's doing, you know? But it's dying on the vine is what it's doing. Gradually, you know, piece by piece. It doesn't happen all at once. And these are heavenly messengers. When you look in the mirror and you go, oh no. (laughs) You could also consider maybe this is also a wake-up call, you know. And for a lot of us in this room, a lot of life is gone already, you know. I figured if you're 40, so a lot of you might be in that more or less age range, your life might be about half over, you know, maybe a little less if you're lucky, if you've got good genes. And I figured the other day, if I made it to 90, mine is already 80% gone. And of course, if I don't, which I might not, lots of people don't make it to 90, maybe it's 90% gone or 95% or maybe it's 99.9% gone. We don't know. And this is, it's really serious. This is really serious. This is a problem. We don't know, do we? We never know when. All those folks running the marathon in Boston a couple of weeks ago, they got up in the morning, they ate their breakfast, they thought they were running a perfectly normal marathon. And some of them are gone. And many of them are terribly wounded. Or the people who went to work that day at the World Trade Center also had their breakfast and said goodbye to their families and went off for a perfectly normal work day. Or I sometimes think a couple of years ago, my husband and I climbed Mount Lassen and two days later we were hiking elsewhere in the park and there was a little boy climbing Mount Lassen and a piece of the trail fell off, some concrete that they'd done reinforcement with, and came down on his family while they were having lunch and killed him. He was the exact same age as my grandson. He was 10 years old. You know, we don't know. And so it's important that we not waste time. This is what you've got. This ida, 
that Gil talked about last night. That's what we have. That's, you know, the Buddha said somewhere, I've been told, that if you have all you have, if you've got the in-breath, there will be an out-breath. That's all you can be sure of. That's not so very much. There's a lovely poem by Jane Kenyon, who was a really good poet who died of leukemia some years ago. And she says, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. So awareness of this possibility, this immediacy, uh, the possible immediacy of our own death can be an inspiration for a lifetime of practice. I know this very well because when I was a child, I was told by my parents that when you died, then nothing, that was the end, you know, nothing. I have no idea what happens to you when you die. Um, But it really scared me as a child. You know, like, what do you mean you suddenly become nothing? And I used to lie in bed trying to imagine becoming nothing. But out of that, that, what I consider now to be sort of the death koan, you know, the death riddle, if you will, the death challenge, grew a whole lifetime of practice. And that's actually what really started my spiritual search. And it still continues to this day to be a koan. You know, what, what will it be like? Mary Oliver says, what will it be like that cottage of darkness? You know, who knows? So we don't like it when our noses get rubbed in this. And really the question is, how do we have equanimity? How do we meet this impermanence? And so many of us turn to practice to create the foundation for our moving into that experience. Ajahn Chah, who is one of the great meditation teachers in this lineage, uh, when asked about you know, how come he had a favorite teacup? You know, wasn't he attached? And he held the teacup up, you know, like this. And he said, I consider this cup to be already broken. You know, can we do this? You know, the, the, the cup is already broken. The retreat is already over. This building has already fallen down. And our lives are already ended. Because there will come that moment. So in this precious existence, which is very short, then we're also invited to consider that all of our actions have consequences. This is the teaching of karma in Buddhist thinking. And we forget this, don't we? We forget 
all the time about the consequences of our actions. And we barge ahead, sometimes angry and impatient and irritated and wanting our own way. And we leave in our wake, you know, people who are upset and confused and bewildered. There isn't a person in this room who has escaped harm from the actions of someone else by speech or by some sort of force. And none of us are innocent of harm. We've all done it. And probably countless hours of therapy later, we also know how long-lasting the reverberations of actions can be. But we also feel the reverberation of skillful actions because you can think for a moment of all the, the chain of actions and consequences, how far back do they go, that brought you here this week. Something brought you here and brought you to practice. And some of, them, some of those actions may have been yours and some of them may have been the actions of other people. You know, there's, a t- there's an understanding that um, if you take a ship and it's going across an ocean, maybe like from, you know, Florida to Africa, and you change its course in the very beginning by one degree, it ends up in a very, very different place. You know, it seems really small, that one degree of change, when you're still just off the coast of Florida. But when you get to Africa, it's, you might even miss Africa. I don't know. I haven't worked it out. But um, it completely changes the end result. So it's important to remember that as we do things because we don't know which action is that one degree. Many years ago, when the Iraq war was just starting, a lot of people were talking about what can we do, you know, how, what, we, what can we do to end war? What can we do to make peace? How do we change this? And I remember somebody in, in one of the groups I was leading saying, well, he didn't know how he could create world peace. He had no idea. He said, but what I do know is I know how to be peaceful. That I can do. And so that was his one degree. He could start doing peaceful things and creating that peaceful reverberation. Well, you could imagine what would happen if everybody did that. You know, all those one degrees would begin to add up to something um, that would be a very different world. I've always been interested in my years of being a, a teacher and a therapist that, you know, I meet people and I talk to them and I've done, ther- back when I was doing therapy, I would do work with them sometimes for a long time. But I didn't very often get to know the end result. You know, people would leave, their lives would change, they'd go someplace else. I think of some of them now, I have no idea where they are on the planet or even if they are. But every now and then, especially in the therapy world, but here in the meditation world too, someone would say, do you remember when you said, and then they would give a little phrase or a sentence. I almost always had no recollection of this whatsoever. But they said, this, this changed everything for me. It changed my life. That's astounding, isn't it? 
You know, again, something really small that just came out and and it changed their lives. And all of you, I, get, I think, also have stories like that to tell where it's, it's not such a big thing. And so here you are acting this week. The action of being here at this retreat has consequences. It creates karma. There will be a reverberation through your life and the lives of others because you chose to be here this week. Choosing a life of practice, choosing to enter into the domains of mindfulness will actually have its reverberation. So then the last of these thoughts is the reflection on the enormity of the suffering on our planet. So even though the human existence is rare and precious, it does not seem to come without suffering. And sometimes it's the suffering that just comes with having a body, sickness, old age, death. And sometimes it's the suffering that comes because things are so very impermanent and they never seem to be totally satisfactory. And if you look at whatever your news source is these days, online or television or even an old-fashioned newspaper, it's very evident that the planet everywhere is suffering. All the injustice and the prejudice and the racial tensions and the killing and the shattered families and shattered lives over and over. It's everywhere and it's unavoidable. And the Buddha saw this. He saw the suffering in the world around him. And he saw how much we struggle with the way things are. And that it, that struggle with the way things are makes the ordinary suffering far, far worse. And so he also saw how we could let go of, of our attachments to having things be a particular way and find some peace and freedom even in the midst of the suffering. So really, you know, what else is there to do in the face of all this suffering but to practice? It seems to be maybe the only way to deal with the serious and unusual problem of having a human life, to go right into it and to see deeply what is so and to find some ease by doing that. Avoiding it, Avoiding your life, avoiding the truth of your life only creates more suffering. And when we go right in, you know, right into the breath and the body and all of the other things that come and go in the mind and the heart, this is where the possibility of awakening is. It's just like all of those myths and stories where you go out and you travel all over the world seeking the treasure only to discover that it's sewn into the hem of your garment or it's buried in your backyard or it's in a box under your bed, someplace like that, 
right back where you started from. So, here you are, sitting, following the breath. Our friend Norman Fisher describes this as sitting with the basic, with the basic feeling of being alive. Just sitting with the basic. Did you notice at all today that you were alive? You might take the time to do that as you sit. I'm alive. Breathing. Sensing. Sitting. Noticing that. Noticing what is here. The sights. The sounds. The smells. The tastes. All the other body sensations. And that mind going on endlessly, chattering, chattering, chattering. All of it, even the chattering mind, arising in the field of awareness. And we are paying attention. We're giving our attention to the fact of this precious human life. And that's enough. David White says, enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. Being alive and giving it our attention. And as we said earlier, when we do that, we notice how impermanent the breath is, how it's here only seconds and then it's gone. And how many more breaths will there be? One or 10 or several thousand or many years worth? And we also begin to see what gets in the way of our experiencing this human life. All of the things that pull us away endlessly. The mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun, one more clear night in bed with the moon, one more hour to get the words right, one more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket in dried grasses, as if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough, as if joy weren't strewn all around. We're endlessly going off trying to figure out how it could be different. And we get caught also in the mind filled with aversion and upset, or maybe what you found today was all you could do was fall asleep. Every time you took a breath, you thought, okay, now I'm awake, this time I'm awake, and the next thing you know, you were asleep again. Or if you weren't sleepy, maybe you were restless, and the body didn't want to settle, and it hurt, and it was antsy, and you've never sat so many hours in your entire life, and all you want to do is run around a little bit. Or maybe you start wondering, why am I doing this and is it worth it? And I'm not so sure about this Buddhist practice and maybe I should have spent my money on some other kind of vacation. Mexico might have been nice. But you know, this is practice too. These, These hindrances, these things that get in the way, they're part of the human life. And you know what? They point us to the places where we're not cooked yet. They, if, if, all, if you're caught constantly by desire, then you know, ah, 
that's the place I need to work. Or if you're overwhelmed with restlessness, then learning how to be a little steadier and a little calmer is the place you need to work. They are part of being human and they are also the reverberation of many previous actions. So over and over again, as all of this happens as we're sitting, we keep coming back to the breath because this breath is so foundational. It's what calms and stabilizes the mind. It will help you as you relax into it to develop concentration. And it's a very skillful action with good consequences. You can bring the breath to the difficulties in the body as you hurt, breathing into the pain and stiffness. You can bring the breath to the fears and the desires that come, come up, breathing into them, moving into them, investigating them with your breathing. When we do this, we begin to see as things calm down a bit that there may be a way to practice which will bring, if not a complete ending of suffering, at least some relief from suffering. And maybe in the end, complete. We come back. We come back over and over again, relaxing into this awareness that is non-judgmental and all-inclusive. We practice just being, just being alive. I was recently asked to contribute to a book of women uh, writing about some Zen stories. And um, so a bunch of stories came my way. And this was the one I chose. And I really like it. It's called The Old Woman's Miraculous Powers. It's about three monks who are on pilgrimage. And along their way, they met a woman who had a tea shop, an old woman. And she prepared a pot pot of tea and she brought three cups and she said to them, O monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. Well, what do you do? You know, that's a challenge. And the three looked at each other and kind of didn't know what to do. And the woman said, watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. Then she picked up the cups, poured the tea, and went out. So, nothing special, nothing fancy, just being fully here for whatever time we have. Being here simply, if not without suffering, at least with less. Norman Fisher again says, meditation is fundamentally sitting with the basic feeling of being alive. What is the basic feeling of being alive? Being conscious, embodied, and breathing. That is what it actually feels like to be alive. Every moment of your life, all of your feelings, thoughts, and accomplishments depend on this. But most of us hardly ever notice it. In meditation, our task is just to be present with this and nothing else. Simply sitting, aware of the feeling of being alive. And in a final poem from Art Vanderloo, 
He says the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. So I hope as these days unfold themselves that you will, as you sit here with your breath and your body and your heart, be fully alive and experience it moment by moment. So let's just sit just as you are. No need to move around and breathe for just a moment. So thank you very much for listening. And you now have about half an hour for walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.